This is Beyond Species, a podcast exploring issues around speciesism and the struggle to dismantle it. from Fernando. Fernando explains some of the difficulties of pushing animal rights activism forward in Colombia. Issues around land ownership, a history of colonialism, war, poverty and trauma interconnect to create a challenging landscape. In a country where cattle ranchers, politicians and paramilitaries often work together to protect their interests, animal rights activism can be a dangerous calling. Fernando also explained some of the complications around bullfighting in Colombia. So if you wanted to start then by just giving us an introduction to yourself and your activism. Uh, yeah, my, my name is Fernando Cuenca. I was born in Bogota, Colombia, uh, 1979. So I grew up there, I grew up, there uh, up until I was uh, 23 years old. Then I moved to the U.S. to go to school. Uh, grad school and then i uh, ended up uh, staying and uh, i lived in uh, new york city for a while until about uh, 2008 and since uh, 2008 i've been living in uh, in washington state north of seattle i got involved uh, in activism uh, through music i was into hardcore and punk and all that and uh, then i started getting more involved into politics and um, I got involved uh, in anti-bullfighting, and that's how I ended up uh, going into animal rights and, and talking about veganism, uh, which was not really heard of in the country at the time. You know, this is uh, probably year 2001 or so. So a few friends of mine, uh, my best friend and I and other people decided to start an organization down there that would deal with uh, the, the ethical problem of uh, consumption of animals for food, which we thought was a really big topic that nobody was talking about. People were talking about other animal issues like circuses and bullfights, you know, uh, cockfighting, things like this. But nobody was really talking about animals uh, raised and killed for meat. Uh, as a matter of fact, most activists were meat eaters, which we thought was a little contradicting. Mm. Uh, we uh, ended up, uh, you know, learning a lot of things uh, from starting this organization. We kind of opened the door for other people, even though our group was, it didn't live long. It was active for about four years. Uh, it opened the door for other people to, like, talk about veganism and uh, in a context that was not a subcultural context, you know, uh, people in hardcore. Hmm. Uh, were vegan. I knew a, a few vegans that were involved in music and things like that. And we didn't want that. We wanted, you know, to tell people that anybody mm -hmm. could think about going vegan uh, and that everybody was responsible for what was happening. Yeah. So then, then I moved. Um, I was, when I moved, I was, it was not supposed to be permanent. Um, so I stayed involved in the group for a few years. Uh, and then, uh, well, then, you know, life kind of happened. I, I met my wife uh, in New York mm -hmm. and uh, we got married uh, in Brooklyn, New York. We lived in Brooklyn for a few years. And then I wasn't too active uh, during my time in New York. I was dealing with other issues, you know, immigration, things like this. So it was, that was pretty time consuming. Uh, then I finally, we ended up moving to Washington, and I remember one of the first things I did was I went to volunteer for an organization here called uh, Northwest Animal Rights Network. Uh, and then I, I've been involved with them since uh, I moved here. Uh, really great organization, has been around for like 30 years, it's all volunteer run, they do great stuff. And then I, I try to stay involved or keep track of what's happening in 
in Colombia still, I think like the conversation is still going, it's still evolving, uh, not as quickly as we would like, obviously, because we we would love to, you know, flip a switch and have all these issues go away, but uh, we're making progress. And I think uh, part of that progress comes from the work we did, you know, uh, 15 or so years ago. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask you to, if you go back to 2001, when you first started out, what was the kind of the public response to when you were trying to um, educate people about, you know, the, the food animal issue? Well, it was, it was interesting. Um, a lot of people were angry. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, country has been at war for 50 years. And so a lot of people are in, you know, survival mode. Um, they don't, they think, you know, I'm trying to survive here. Like, why are you trying to tell me I should care about a cow or a chicken? And um, we faced uh, a lot of resistance in, in that sense. A lot of people, you know, I, th- I think all, all of our, all activists, I, I've, I've faced the same question in, in different countries, in different places, in saying, you know, there is a lot of suffering in the world and you're trying to tell me to care about animals. But mm. there, the suffering was like really palpable. People, you know, have lost loved ones, have lived in fear for two generations, you know. So it's hard for them to to make mental space to to care about animals. And um, that was a big challenge. We, in the beginning, you know, we were inexperienced. We we didn't know what to say, how to relay these things. And we had to find a way to, you know, get people to think that that our, our survival mode, the, the war um, was uh, in a way related to, to eating animals for food and, we met a lot of resistance to that idea, but I think uh, that that is the truth. That is one of the true things about the war is that the, the people who make a profit out of raising and killing animals are the same people that are fueling the war. And that still happened to this day. Mm. So is that like, um, so that animal exploitation industry then is kind of run, do you mean like by like people with links to the government or... To, to organize crime or, or what, what is that? Well, they're, they're linked to both, actually. So the conflict in Colombia is a very complex thing. Uh, it has very, it has different actors, but um, the conflict in Colombia really started with uh, uh, land ownership. Mm. Land ownership was, has been a big issue uh, all over Central and South America. It's like a leftover of, uh, colonization by the Spaniards. So distribution of land is a very complex issue in the Americas. Uh, and that's how the the guerrillas in Colombia got started. They wanted uh, land reform and they wanted uh, redistribution of land. But a lot of the land in Colombia, the agricultural land is owned by cattle ranchers and they don't, you know, that's how they make their money. And um, they defend that by any means necessary. So they can be, they have big lobby groups, obviously, just like in any other country. Uh, mm-hmm. But they also, when when lobbying is not enough, they get involved in in organized crime, you know, para, paramilitary activity. You know, if, if somebody's speaking against uh, cattle ranchers, they can get killed or... Mm-hmm. You know, or there's like smear campaigns against them. They get accused of being communists or being guerrilla collaborators and things like that. So they have a lot of power, um, mm. both uh, in the government and outside the government. Mm. So yeah, so that that must have been quite um, uh, quite a precarious situation for you then, as animal rights activists trying to like influence the public and you know animal rights activists are obviously known or like any social justice activists for being outspoken and you've got to kind of create a conversation so and it's it's a pretty um it's a topic that was kind of 
controversial because you know it, it revolved around people's survival. Um, so, how did you find it then? Trying to advocate in that kind of situation when there could be actual threats to your life, or, or you know, um, from from people like paramilitaries and so on. I remember we when we started, uh, we uh, had a meeting. Like I remember this like re- really vividly. We we had a meeting, and that was what we talked about. We said, you know, we are going to talk about people who who we know have no problem killing other people. So what are we, are we, are we sure we want to do this? And we, we decided uh, in the beginning, we were completely anonymous. We created a website uh, that had all, all the facts that we had researched and um, we put it out there uh, and, but it had nobody's name. Uh, there was, you know, the, the email didn't, we almost never, answered any email or anything mm-hmm. so then we also because of the we wanted to stay anonymous we couldn't do any like public events you know like an outreach event or uh, at the time i remember earlings uh, had just come out and everybody was talking about earlings and we thought about uh screening earlings somewhere mm-hmm. Uh, and we we then we decided not to because then it could be you could find out who who we were and we weren't comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So that's how we dealt with with that issue is we we try to stay anonymous, but staying anonymous obviously hinders completely what what we could do. And I don't mm-hmm. think we were too effective in the beginning because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I guess a lot of it's got to do with actually, you know, making connections with people. And so if you're kind of like trying to do campaigns, like from behind the veil of of just online, that must be quite difficult then. And this was kind of social media was still kind of in its infancy then, right? So there wasn't that you did you really just have like a website and trying to do some kind of online campaigns through that yeah that that was it so so one of the things we found out in the very beginning was that we did not have the facts Hmm. so we did a lot of research about simple facts you know that a lot of animal rights activists usually know but we didn't know like how many animals are raised for food in the country Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't know that number. How does a slaughterhouse in Colombia look like? Mm-hmm. Is it is it worse, better than what we see online on a video? Uh, you know, things like that. So we we did a lot of research about that. We unfortunately, well, fortunately for us, the uh, the information was like really av- available. It was just waiting for somebody to to put it together. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have to do undercover investigations or anything like that because at the time nobody was wary of animal rights activists at all like mm-hmm. so we would we will tell a, a farm some story that we were in school and we wanted to do a project and we needed to film inside the farm and if we could do that and to our surprise a lot of people would say yes yeah, sh- sure and we would go into a farm and film take pictures out in the open, nobody cared that we were there. Uh, same with the slaughterhouses. We visited big, you know, industrial type slaughterhouses that look like any other industrial slaughterhouse footage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also visited a small town slaughterhouses that were, those were pretty brutal to go into. Uh, lots of really ugly, ugly things were happening there. The only thing we never got to uh, visit was uh, illegal slaughterhouses. Uh, that's a that's a big deal. Back in Colombia, actually, the government thinks that there is more illegal slaughterhouses than legal ones. Uh, but we couldn't find out where that stuff really happens uh, because obviously the people doing that they they know it's a crime. So that those were more worried about not animal rights knowing, but nobody knowing what they were doing. So that's that. That was the beginning. That was what we had uh, on our website was all these 
all these pictures and uh, some videos and it was uh it was a little uh, graphic um if if i got to do it that again today i would probably not be as graphic uh, it was mm. a lot of graphic images mm. um but that's what we had in the beginning uh up until we had the chance not to be anonymous anymore mm -hmm. mm. What was the situation that led from you being like an anonymous group to being able to, you know, go public? So uh, two things happened. One is we, we had been around for a little bit already and we hadn't heard anything. Like we hadn't received any threats. Uh, we, we, you know, we got the rare like hate mail, you know, somebody saying that, I own a farm and you want me to go out of business or something like that. Mm -hmm. But what happened was we designed an ad that we wanted to put in the newspaper. And, and uh, we had the money. Uh, I, don't, I, I forgot. I think we all just chipped in and, and, and decided to pay for this. And uh, we had an ad that we wanted to put in the, in the newspaper that was related um, be, uh, that was relating animals to what was happening in the country. So mm -hmm. the the ad read uh, had a picture of a chicken, and it read, uh, "We we fight for those uh, kidnapped in farms." So because at the at the time the country was uh, dealing with a lot of you know a lot of people were being taken, getting kidnapped. You know you would travel from city to city, let's say drive from one city to another. And you would get stopped by by groups, you know, any armed group, and you would get taken, and mm -hmm. you know, then your family would have to pay money to get you back, and that's how they financed part of their operations. So we tried to relate that, you know, kidnapped, kidnapping, and what was happening to animals. Now, you know, 15 years later, I don't like that we try to do that, but that's how it happened, mm -hmm. and the. Uh, the newspaper rejected it. He said, they said, we're not publishing this. And we mm. kind of let it go. And a few weeks later, I think, yeah, a few weeks later, or a month later, we got an email from somebody inside the newspaper that I guess ran into the ad or I don't know how they 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 found out about us. Mm. And she said, you know, I this is this looks interesting to me that you guys are talking about all these things. And do you want to go and give me an interview mm -hmm. so we she said we had to go into the the newspaper office to to do this um so we sat down um and uh my my best friend diego and i who were really the ones that were kind of like more in charge of the whole group we talked about it we said you know we we haven't received any threats we maybe maybe we are not going to get any i don't know so uh, if we go in there and give the interview, then then people will know, you know, it, it will be public that that's us, that's our name and all that. But they, we decided to do it. So we went and gave the interview, which was actually uh, really great, a really great interview. I remember going in, you know, uh, on the defensive. I, I, I thought, you know, this person is just going to attack what what we're trying to do. And to be honest, she was just more like curious about it, like, you, you know, uh, about the whole idea of of not exploiting animals. And she would ask us, you know, what about this or what about that? Uh, you know, what about your shoes and uh, what do you eat? And uh, it was a pretty positive uh, experience. And it got published not only online, but on on paper. It went on like and this is like national circulation newspaper. Mm -hmm. So. We got a lot of people interested. We got both sides, right? We we got a lot of people interested in, in what we were doing. We got a lot of people saying that we were, you know, a little a little nuts. Uh, and people saying, you know, I own a farm. This is my, my way of life. Like, what are you guys talking about? And after that, we decided, you know, well, our, our name is out there. Our, our picture is out there. So let's just do like, let's just be a public organization with our name on it. Um, and so that's how we became public. Okay. And 
how did that go then after that? Once you'd like, once you'd gone public, you're obviously getting, you know, both good and bad feedback. Did you feel that there were like things shifting that you were, you were able to, to be more impactful or effective or, or did things go the other way and did things get a bit like, um, was your security culture kind of compromised, I suppose? Well, the, so the, to be honest, I think that the security culture kind of took a back seat and mm-hmm. we got a, you know, pretty comfortable in being up in being public. And uh, we were, I think we were pretty effective uh, because of that. Uh, we weren't too, you know, cautious. So we did it like screenings of like film screenings, uh, gave talks at schools. You know, we, we put it on our website, like if you want us to go talk to your school or your university or uh, we're open to that. And we gave a few of those talks mm. and uh, it started going uh, pretty well. We uh, we got the attention, for example, one of the things that we wanted to do was uh, uh, create like a like a vegan guide for the city mm-hmm. in Bogota. So we um, that's where uh, most of our activities took place hmm. and uh, so we started contacting places uh, you know that were starting to open you know like vegetarian restaurants and vegan restaurants and I remember this vegan bakery that was kind of unheard of uh, that opened up and we created this booklet with all of their addresses and things like hmm. that um, and we published that so we we were uh uh, very effective after that and we never got besides angry mail every now and then we we never got threatened with anything uh, so i think our security culture kind of took a back seat uh and we really didn't worry about it after after that interview because mm-hmm. we saw all the positive that was coming from that mm-hmm. hitting the mainstream media really kind of was a catalyst for like you know, being able to kind of get more stuff out there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we still had to do, uh, a lot of, we, a lot of work, like on the, on the, on the ground, like a lot of people were, oh, you know, I, I, I don't want to eat meat, but I don't know what to eat. Or I Mm. think is, is, is this going to be too expensive or things like that? So we, we run, we did a few projects. I remember we visited just regular supermarkets uh, mm-hmm. for a while. And we would just sit down almost all, you know, half a day reading ingredients of, of things, trying to find out what was already vegan that was already at the supermarket mm-hmm. um, so that we could tell people, okay, so you want to go vegan. You don't know what to eat. But if you go to just a regular supermarket, all this stuff is already vegan that, that you can eat. And um, uh, that went really well, too. Uh, we published that list. Um, and uh, uh, so people were getting, you know, help uh, from us. And uh, the restaurants were, there was more vegan restaurants than before. Mm-hmm. There were restaurants that actually understood what, what vegan meant. I remember uh, going vegan and you would go to a, vegetarian restaurant and we you would ask if something was vegan and the people didn't know what that meant they they would say like what does that mean and you have to explain you know no no dairy no eggs and all this and um uh so that started changing like the 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 word vegan started being more known Mm -hmm. uh to to people and we thought that was really cool take you back then to at the start you'd mentioned that there were when you started out doing the activism there were already activists doing things like against bullfighting and cockfighting and things like that what was the situation there um, particularly with like the bullfighting because you know is that something that still happens in Colombia and has it got worse or better or yeah, so bull, bullfighting uh, has been around, you know, for a really long time. Mm. 
maybe like 400 years or so since the Spaniards came, um, they, they brought that. So it's, a, it's an uphill battle because the government uh, considers bullfighting part of like our heritage. So it's, it's protected actually. The, the practice of bullfighting has been protected as cultural heritage for uh, a while. So when when I uh, I joined those uh, campaigns, um, there was not really an outright campaign to try to ban the bullfight. We we knew that the the activists knew that banning the bullfight was uh, nearly impossible. Mm. So uh, actually, my my first campaign, uh, we were trying to get the city to make uh, the bullfight uh, eight eight and over eighteen and over. Uh, event so only adults could go in they were bringing kids you know any age into into that kind of thing and we so we're trying to pressure the the city council to make it just adults that was our my first campaign Mm. and um i think uh that didn't pass i think you're you can still to this day bring kids into the bullfight so Bullfighting, the, the other side of bullfighting is that the people who uh, raise bulls for bullfights have uh, also a lot of political and economic power. So they don't they don't want to the bullfight to be touched at all. You know, they mm. they make a whole uh, incredible amounts of money from from raising these animals uh, so they can go into the bullfight. Mm-hmm. So that's one issue. But then uh, a few years, uh, I forgot the year, but uh, it was in the, in the, you know, maybe 10, 12 years ago. Uh, this guy was elected mayor of the city. Uh, his name is Gustavo Petro. And Gustavo Petro used to be uh, part of the M19 uh, movement, which was a guerrilla group that disbanded back in the late 80s and became a political party mm-hmm. so they they were one of the few groups that actually signed a peace treaty they and with the government and they stopped fighting became a political party but uh he has always been accused of you know being a communist and you know being from the left and uh, colombia's right-wing side has a lot of power so they don't they they don't like him he has a lot of political enemies hmm. so uh, uh when he was running for office he promised he would ban the bullfight in the city hmm. so he did uh he did do that he came into office and they banned the bullfight for a few years but the problem was that um so he actually didn't just ban he didn't, he couldn't ban the practice of bullfighting as i said that's protected but what he said was that the the bullfighting arena be, uh, belongs to the city Mm-hmm. And that uh, uh, this uh, bullfighting is called the Bullfighting Corporation. Actually, um, this corporation rents the arena from the city to do the bullfights. So he just said, "We're not gonna rent you the arena anymore, mm-hmm. and and you're done, and uh, go have your bullfights somewhere else." Uh, but somewhere else meant outside of the city. So he in practice banned the bullfight uh, in the city. That's that's how he got around the protection. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it was very not on firm ground, that, that kind of, uh, you know, just voiding a contract that the, these yeah. bullfighting people have with the city. So they sued, they won, and they the bullfight came, came back. And uh, there is uh, bullfights uh, to this day. Um, this year was canceled uh, because of COVID. Mm-hmm. The city canceled the bullfighting season, which it should be taking place around now. You know, it's uh, February, March. But they, um, the bullfights are still happening just in, in private lands. So all these uh, cattle ranchers that are into bullfighting, they have their own arenas in their own places. So they, mm-hmm. they're having their own private parties, I guess. Um, so it's, it's an uphill battle. I don't know. Uh, when uh, it will go away mm. uh, i think uh, in generationally less and less young people are into bullfights just from the cruelty aspect they don't they just don't want to participate in, in something so visual and uh, bloody mm. uh, and I'll, and a few people from the political 
side of like, this is not really our tradition. This was brought to us and somehow it ended up being protected as our cultural heritage, even though it, it really isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I was I was thinking that. What do you know? What the the mayor's reason, like rationale, was for banning it? Was it like on animal welfare grounds, or was it kind of like an anti-colonial approach as well? Well, it was it was more. Uh, he he spoke about the cruelty of mm-hmm. it. He was against that practice. Uh, he said this is very cruel. Mm. But but he also knew that a lot of uh, of the people that were his political enemies were involved in it. So it was kind of like a uh, okay. both a, an animal welfare justification as well as to just you know stick it to the guys that he didn't like. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was a mistake that he did that. Uh, I think uh, if he had pushed for. Uh, this, the city council for a more formal process mm-hmm. uh, in which the city could have voted to ban the bullfight from the city, it would have had more firm legal ground and it wouldn't have come back. Um, mm. But he he rushed he rushed through it and he left them that open door for them to push back and and they ended up winning. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. And I suppose there's a bigger issue in that, you know, even if the city if the city had banned it, that would be good because it would kind of set a precedent, I suppose. But like you say, it would just move elsewhere. But I guess the the positives are, um, like you'd mentioned, is that in the public imagination, at least um, with, with the younger demographics, people seem to be moving away from, you know, that kind of uh cruel activities so you know maybe that's where the hope lies is that you know it's just gonna slowly fade out as people lose interest maybe the culture kind of changes yeah i and and you can see that even in spain where this thing has been around for way longer Mm. uh, the younger generations are just not interested in any of this so like for example the city of barcelona has no bullfights anymore Mm mm-hmm which is great. I mean, if if they can do it when where this is really a, you know, thing that has been going on for I don't know a thousand years, mm-hmm. then we should be able to do the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. So hopefully, we'll we'll get there. Uh, there's been a few. Um, it it's been actually uh, pretty interesting. One of one a good friend of mine who is an activist, uh, Andrea Padilla. He's she's also a lawyer, and. Mm-hmm. She has been, uh, she tracks basically all the animal welfare laws that have been passed in the country. Mm. She has found ways in which she says, you know, uh, the government passed this law for animal welfare. If you take the the law and you study it, you can see that uh, this law turns the bullfight into an illegal practice because of what they do. Mm. So she has sued saying, you know, you, because you either you pass the law, so now you have to enforce it, which means you have to ban the bullfight. And chick is getting pushed back, you know. I think it's gone almost all the way to the Colombian Supreme Court that, you know, she sues them, they they sue her back, or there is an appeal. I mean, it's a like years and years of of uh, legal process. Um she was the spokesperson for uh, Anima Naturalis Colombia, which is uh, uh, the branch of uh, an organization that's based in Spain. They opened uh, an office in Colombia and she was a spokesperson. This was this happened after my own group had dissolved. Mm-hmm. Um, but now she's a, a council woman. She ran for city council and won and got in. And she's been doing lots of uh, great work uh, towards like animal welfare and uh, trying to get things like bullfights uh, banned. Um, but it, as I said, it's a it's a really uphill battle. Like people have way, people involved in this have way too much power and too much money. And at the end of the day, they also have no problem killing whoever stands in their way. Mm. Yeah. 
yeah, it sounds very different to some of the activism that you know that we're kind of used to in Europe and the U.S., where um, where you know there's a lot of there's a lot of activists kind of particularly leaning towards a kind of right right wing who like think they're um, some sort of like you know macho males who are like changing changing the world um while they stomp about social media being like racist and you know anti-semitic and all sorts um and actually they've got no appreciation for kind of some of the dangers that activists in in other parts of the world possibly might come to harm and but also they have no appreciation for you know people of color black people indigenous people actually in their own countries who also might you know activism is about actually trying to survive. Um, so I think like mainstream veganism has this kind of um, narrative that get out there, protest, you know, do your civil disobedience. And it's kind of coming from quite a privileged place a lot of the time from white folk who just, they're not going to get arrested and they're not going to come to harm. And I think that's why it's so important to, to, like remember that like activism should be local because only you know what's going on really in your particular part of the world you know yeah and uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, one of the reasons why when i decided to stay in the u.s i wasn't uh, active was that uh, i had i had a fear right that uh if if i get arrested or a protest I can very easily be deported. Um, mm. And not that that's the end of the world, I would just go back to Colombia, but it's a, it would be a pretty disruption, for example, for my wife who doesn't even speak Spanish. Because mm -hmm. um, obviously she would, she would just say, well, let's just go and that would, that would be it. Mm. And uh, that was another reason why uh, I actually ended up getting citizenship. Uh, so I have a, a, a U.S. passport. And uh, not because I really, uh, I'll be honest, I don't really care about having a U.S. passport. It just gives me a little bit more safety that uh, being active, if something goes wrong, mm. at the very least, the, the first thing that they're going to do is not deport me. And, you know, then I'll be away from my family for who knows how long. Mm. But, um, yeah, so that's that's real. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I feel that... Um, some of these activists, like the, the people you're talking about that say, oh, you know, you should be out there protesting. And they don't realize that that some people do do that and end up uh, dying. Mm. Uh, environmental activists uh, in Brazil, in Central America, they, they die all the time. Mm. Um, and it's because of what they're doing. It, they Obviously, the media and the government tries to tell some other story that he had nothing to do with them being an activist, but um, uh, I forgot his name. There was the, this guy in Mexico. There was uh, this thermoelectric plant uh, was being built. He gave a speech about, against it. Uh, he's an indigenous uh, person. He, he said, you know, this is our land, and he, he spoke against the project and why they shouldn't build it. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't even wait. Next morning, Hmm. Uh, after the speech, he gets killed, hmm. and the government expects everybody to believe that it was just some random act of violence that we're trying to mug the guy. Uh, like people are not that stupid. Like we know who killed him. We we can't prove the can prove it probably, mm -hmm. but it obviously has to be. It's linked to what he was saying. Like hmm. some people just don't didn't like what he said and. In a lot of these places in the world, like just like human life has like no value, just like animal life has no value, mm -hmm. human life has no value. People mm -hmm. just uh, don't don't care. And sadly, in Colombia, it's kind of like that. Yeah, and and that's the thing with the kind of anti-intersectional quote unquote people who are like you know stop stop trying to bring human rights and like human issues into animal rights. And it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of people around the world whose human rights just aren't acknowledged. So, 
you know, you can't expect them to just like show up, uh, you know, and not, not kind of try and, you know, fight for their own rights. Yeah, it's just, it's such a, I just think like the mainstream vegan view, or maybe we could call it something like, we could call it white veganism. It just really has that total um, ignorance about it that doesn't appreciate these kind of issues at all, you know. Right. And, and in Colombia, you know, that's what we found. You know, mm. If if we are completely honest, what what we tried to do in the beginning was like mainstream veganism. You know, telling people about like cruelty to animals uh, and how unethical it is, and and that's all like true. It may be true, but because of the situation we were in, a, a lot of people couldn't relate to that. So we had to go into how all these things are connected. Mm. So in Colombia, the the conflict, as as I said a little bit before, is about land and who owns the land and how the cattle ranchers are involved in that and how the cattle ranchers are involved in the war. So even even if you find somebody who truly turns around and says, you know, I don't care what happens to a cow, we're at war. How come I I don't want to care about animals? Mm. I think it's acceptable to say, I I understand where you're coming from. A lot of people will say that speciesism, mm. um, but just to acknowledge that that to that person, like I understand where you're coming from, but what happened to you, to us, to all of these humans in in the middle of this war, has to do with what we do to animals because it has to do with the land and what that land is used for. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with who owns that land and what they're willing to do to defend their, their land ownership. Mm -hmm. So I find it really hard when to accept anything that point, when people say, you know, you shouldn't bring human rights into animal rights uh, because in, in a lot, that's a very, like first world thing mm -hmm. uh a lot of people don't uh don't have the luxury of separating both um mm -hmm. and you we also have to acknowledge as, as activists that there has to be a certain level of safety and of how can i say this like a stability mm -hmm. for people to consider animal rights some people are out there quite literally in survival mode. Mm -hmm. They they don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. They don't know if they're going to be alive tomorrow. So if you go to them trying to talk to them about animals, animals are the last thing they have mental space for. Mm -hmm. And I can understand that. And if that makes me a bad animal rights activist, then so be it. But I, I need to understand that that's what some people have gone through that some people have seen so much suffering or they fear for their lives so much that they just don't have the mental space to care about animals at that point. Now you can say, sure, I can uh, work with them or, or meet them where they are and, and see if I can get somewhere. That's, that's completely different than saying, oh, you shouldn't bring human rights into animal rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's like if you're not going to meet someone where they are, where they are, you're not going to have a productive conversation or kind of engagement anyway, right? I mean, you know, you can't just um, you can't just have your standpoint and kind of try and like hammer it home because, like you say, if that person's just got all this other stuff on their mind, it's just not even going to like register. It's just like, what are you talking about? You know. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 going to be very hard and I think you you come across as uh well not only insensitive but completely detached from that person's reality and they're never they're never going to listen to you no matter what you say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you'd said also that your group had laid the groundwork all those years ago. And now when you look at what's happening in Colombia, you can see how that's kind of helped to get 
um, animal rights and veganism to where it is now, or at least in Bogota. So what's the, what's your take on the current situation there in terms of that? Yeah. So, so when we kind of like disbanded, you know, uh, I ended up moving here. My, my friend Diego ended up moving to Brazil. Uh, and we kind of like, everybody's spread out and, and the group kind of died. When we disbanded, uh, right after that, a few other groups uh, in Colombia, like grassroots groups were formed by other people. Mm-hmm. So right from there, I could see that we had opened the door for other people to do the same thing we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And then a few years later, Anima Naturalis, which is uh, in Spain, opened their office, their group in Colombia. And they were the biggest uh, at the, you know, probably even today, they're they're the biggest animal rights organization in the country. Mm -hmm. That has to do a lot with the fact that, you know, it's it's outside money, you know, so they're pretty well funded. They can do a lot of things, a lot of campaigns. And and there's been a lot of progress uh, since then. I remember how surprised I was. So I, I told you before, you know, you go to a vegetarian restaurant, they didn't know what vegan meant. That's how that's how unheard of it was. Then a few, you know, I think maybe eight years ago or so, I went, my wife and I went to Colombia on a trip just to visit my family. We went out to eat and she wanted the dessert. So we, we went to this like, uh, uh, Pan Asian restaurant, and we we found plenty to eat. But then she wanted dessert, which is like that's like at least in my head, is that's a real test when of yeah. how of how uh, common veganism is. If 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 you can get dessert, it's like okay, that was not too hard because yeah. finding finding vegan plates to eat it's not too too hard, but still. So I I read something in the menu that uh, I think may work. So um, uh, the white person comes and I, I ask her, I start asking her, you know what I'm used to ask, you know, does this have dairy? Does this have eggs? Does this have this and that? And I, I, I was like, hey, you know, is, is this, does this have any dairy in it? Um, they turned around and said, no, this dessert is raw vegan. And, and I thought this is, that was like, I was, I felt like really accomplished uh, at that moment. I mm. took a picture of the menu. I sent it to my friend, Diego. And I said, you know, you and I used to not be able to eat anything anywhere. I just went to a place that's not even a vegan place. And they have raw vegan desserts. And that's amazing. And I think that's part of like, I feel that we had a, our part to do in that. Uh, we were small enough and, it, you know, it's been long enough that if you ask animal rights activists today in Colombia who we are, they don't they don't know. Mm. Um, they probably know about animal naturalis and all that, but but the the truth is we we were the ones who opened the door for all of that to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. Um, and what do you think now? Um, where you're based in the U.S. and you've been involved with, um, is it is it non NARN? Yeah, Northwest Animal Rights Network. Is it? Yeah, yeah. So um, it sounds like they what they're doing as well is kind of more locally focused um, and kind of maybe more sort of grassroots. Uh, I mean, I'd never really heard of them until I saw you know your your presentation that you did. Um, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing that there's these these organizations all around you know doing the work in their own areas um do you see like a a kind of a strong kind of grassroots like uh anti-speciesist kind of movement developing around there like where you are or or i suppose i'm trying to gauge um you know, because I talk a lot on my podcast, unfortunately, about kind of like the kind of social media influence, uh, mainstream white veganism type of crap that seems to be prevalent. But I'm not so sure. I don't think it is actually the biggest thing. I think it's just like the loudest and the most 
in your face. But actually, there's so many groups all around the world just doing the work without, you know, shouting about it and because they don't have 500,000 followers on Instagram or whatever. Yeah. So, so Narn is, uh, is pretty local and, um, there are lots of like local issues here, uh, to deal with a big thing here, for example, is uh, the university of Washington, uh, does a lot of animal testing and they actually, uh, built a new lab a few years ago. There was a huge campaign, um, to try to stop it. And Anon was involved, although the campaign was, uh, mostly uh, a, another grassroots group uh, called No New Animal Lab. And there was a lot of uh, home protests. Uh, so finding out, you know, where does the dean of the university live and go to their house and have a protest right there in their front door, things like that. Uh, or trying to pressure the construction company to drop the project. Um, it was in the local news. It was a there was a lot of noise. Uh, a lot of people got into legal trouble for uh, for that. Uh, and at the end, they uh, at the end they the campaign was unsuccessful. They built a lab. Mm. It's actually a, a pretty. You can drive by it. Uh, it's an awful place. Uh, I mean, the place is so awful that the the lab was built underground, mm. um, because they they don't want the building to be seen or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's very secure, obviously, so it's it's almost impossible to get in or out, right? Um, mm. But you drive by there, and is this really pretty grass lawn? Uh, with these very nice, you know, university buildings, and and you know that under underground they're doing these terrible things to animals. Um, so that's one of the issues you know, that they keep uh, uh, Narn and other groups keep bringing up. It's like, you know, what are the what are the standards in there? What are you guys doing to these animals? So, mm-hmm. so that's one issue. The other, uh, there's other issues here with wolves. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the state uh, protects, you know, cattle from wolves and uh, they end up killing wolves and having hunts and things like that. Uh, hunting is also pretty big here. Mm-hmm. Um, like, a, well, they call it sports hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, I think they hunt mostly deer, bears and cougars uh, in the, in Washington state. Um that's another animal issue here. And salmon, um, salmon has a lot of trouble doing what they have done for, you know, millions of years, which is come back up the, the streams to spawn. So there's a lot of uh, dams that have been built that prevent them from, for generation of electricity. So all these dams really prevent the, 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 the salmon from going back uh, to where they were supposed to go. So he's finding ways around that, preventing new dams to be built uh, or built in a way that the salmon have a way to go around. And then there is obviously uh, vegan outreach. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they, there is a lot of vegan outreach uh, here. So um, those are the issues Narn uh, most likely, most often deals with. Uh, we also used to have um, a chapter for uh, Food Empowering Project okay mm-hmm. so food empowerment project had uh a chapter here i was i was co-coordinator of that chapter and we were trying to uh deal with issues that were in the mission of uh that aligned with uh food empowerment projects mission so like access to healthy food uh farm worker rights so north of seattle all the way to Canada and east, eastern Washington uh, is farm is farmland. So a lot of uh, farm workers live there. There is a lot of issues related to farm worker rights in the state. But uh, a food empowering project decided to dissolve the chapter, uh, which uh, is a decision I agree with. Um, mm-hmm. They they actually say you know uh, creating chapters uh, it hinders the creativity of of the people on the ground. 
you know. Mm. So so grassroots organizations are, are really their best when they are led by local people dealing with local issues. Mm-hmm. So we you have organizations that have chapters all over the world. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, take Anonymous for the Voice for the Voiceless, mm-hmm. and uh, part of doing a chapter is following their model of this is how you do activism and this is how your event needs to be run. Mm-hmm. I mean, down to the point of like this is what you need to wear, things like that. <laughs> I would be hard pressed to think that. Uh, in a country like Colombia, showing up uh, with a mask is going to make people want to talk to you. But, and that's, you know, that's what they think. They think, you know, if we if we all do the same thing, we have uh, all this, they call it impact. What they really show is that, uh, is what you were saying, you know, they just get more followers. And uh, I mm. guess followers means money at some point. Yep. So uh, I agree with 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 Lauren Ornelas uh, from Food Empowerment Project that grassroots organization need to be organized by local people. They they're the ones who know the best about what's happening and how to approach their own communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I I had Lauren Ornelas on one of my episodes actually, and we discussed that, and I also agree with it. And you know, she just said as well that she saw this kind of chapter franchise kind of model of rolling out you know your organization across the world as a kind of form of colonialism as well you know um and especially when you look at something like anonymous for the voiceless which basically is like you know they're whether they know it or not their um their rhetoric is right wing and it's like pure white veganism and they're you know and and like you say, the way that the activists are supposed to behave and talk and stuff, they actually use like the same phrases, you know, no matter where you are in the world. Like, it, you know, if someone says to you this, then this is the answer that you give and so on. So it's this it's like really narrow, confined kind of, I just can't imagine that, that something like Cube of Truth would work in like a lot of countries. And it probably doesn't, but you know, people probably still try because they think this is the way to do it. But yeah, it's uh, it's kind of ridiculous. So yeah, I think this thing about um, you know trusting local, just local activists knowing what needs to be done, and and ultimately, if we're going to change the world, it needs to start with our own communities. And so we might as well get out there into our own communities and like work with them to try and push things forward. You know. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. And, you know, Anonymous for the Voiceless is not the only organization that that does this type of thing. Sadly, other organizations are out there doing the same thing. Like, I, w- I was surprised. I, I found out that uh, Direct Action Everywhere has a chapter in Colombia. And I, I try to talk to the people who run it, but they they weren't receptive to the idea that they probably shouldn't be Doing that, to be honest, I I don't think it 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 leads uh, anywhere. Like shock tactics are not really something that in Colombia kind of works too well. I think people are too sadly they're desensitized to shock. They just see oh you know mm. somebody's doing something and they just keep going on with their day. Yeah. your thoughts on what good anti-species advocacy might look like um, and what could we do better or um, examples of where we've done well yeah so my main thought about that is that when you talk about anti-speciesism you have to realize that uh, humans are a species too Mm. Uh, and what i mean by that is that you cannot really separate human issues from animal issues because they're all interconnected i'll give you an example of something that happened in colombia in colombia uh there is a a spectacle bear spectacle bear 
as a protected species, right? And um, it was uh, hunted almost to extinction. And a few, uh, I think it was last year or two years ago, somebody filmed or there was a video released of uh, uh, this group of indigenous people had caught a bear, an respectable bear, and and they killed the bear to for food, I, I guess. And this, there was this huge uproar against what they had done to this bear. And uh, I remember I kind of got into an argument uh, with somebody online, obviously, because that's what we do best. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I said, you know, uh, you cannot separate like everything that has happened to indigenous people in Colombia with what happened to this bear. Like, think about it. Who almost hunted the spectacle bear to extinction? It wasn't in the, it wasn't indigenous people. Mm-hmm. It was uh, you know Europeans and uh, it wasn't them. Um, like who took the, the indigenous people lands to the point that indigenous people are the poorest people in in the country, and who forced their hand to go and hunt a protected species to to survive? Mm-hmm. Like if they had land to grow food, I can assure you they would be probably growing food instead of trying to hunt a bear. And if it wasn't for what Europeans have did, you know, in 400 years, uh, the spectacle bear shouldn't even be a protected species. There will be enough of them living around, you know, peacefully. So, so you cannot separate those two things. You cannot just say, oh, whoever hunts uh, is a, a protected species is bad. Uh, and it, for example, the same goes with poaching, right? Uh, vegans are really hardcore into anti-poaching, and they support, you know, like military effort, like pseudo-military mm-hmm. efforts to get rid of poachers. You know, uh, mm-hmm. there was that story of that this lady, American lady, that was out there in Africa, basically hunting poachers, and people were like really kind of happy about that and i think you know you you guys are kind of missing the point like who what leads to what leads somebody to poach an animal to survive you cannot separate those two things mm-hmm. because you know you can't get rid of one poacher if if people are in poverty and hungry there is just somebody else is just going to take the risk mm-hmm. So that's that's for me that's like good anti-speciesism is to understand that like you know what what we humans do affect animals obviously it affects other humans mm. the environment uh, it affects everything we we try not to we try to separate uh, what humans do to animals to what we do to one another and I don't think that's the right approach. Mm. Yeah, you put that really well. I think. Um like the way that things interconnect that way you know it's not like uh like just like you stick the two issues together like say anti-colonialism or anti-racism and like you know anti-speciesism it's more it's like much more kind of entangled than that and like when you were talking about the poachers there it made me think you know the irony of that is that you have like yeah military forces basically to protect some animals from from poaching but in those same game reserves there'll be people paying to be trophy hunters so and you know they'll be maybe not shooting an endangered species um but it's just ridiculous that a lot of say western ngos and charities um, and governments will maybe put money into like those organizations to kind of go to war with poachers but at the same time um you know people from those those western countries can show up with uh, you know tons of cash and go and and shoot animals for fun and and the people that the vegans get angry at is obviously the poachers i mean they get angry at the trophy hunters too but the vegans are more than happy to support kind of um the military force um that they're out to get the poachers um without even considering like the root issues 
Um, I mean, I know a lot of those, obviously, the anti-poaching uh, rangers do do a good job, and and they're kind of people who kind of caught in the middle as well, um, and they their lives are at risk as well. But this is the thing when you're not prepared to consider the human issues, like the real root issues, and you're just kind of gonna go with this kind of like quick fix that some like um, Western um, Western kind of um, NGOs have decided is the the best idea. You know, it just totally, um, totally erases like the complications that are happening there. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, we uh, in Colombia we kind of suffered through that with, with the war on drugs. Like, there was a uh, lots of money injected into solving a problem, but the solution never had to do with, with people. That's another issue that has to do with uh, land ownership in Colombia, like drugs. You know, if uh, if you're a small farmer, you have you have a few options to try to survive. You cannot compete with big farms because they produce way more and can sell much cheaper than you can. So, a lot of people end up selling their land to the big farm. So the big farm gets bigger so the the problem keeps going or they can you know if you're if you are growing i don't know let's say potatoes as an example and you you're going to get paid 10 bucks 10 dollars a pound for potatoes um and then somebody comes along and tells you look if you grow coca for cocaine we're gonna give you a hundred dollars per pound like if the person is poor and is starving, what do what do you what do we really expect them to do? <laughs> They're not going mm. to just say, "Oh, okay, I, I'll keep you growing potatoes and basically starving to death." And they're not. And and all these war on drugs, uh, all this money that has been poured into it, has never tackled that problem. So yeah. obviously, they're going to fail. Yeah.